Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to North Langley. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Matthew, and I want to welcome you to our uh, series, Leading Together. Uh, for five weeks, we've been exploring the topic of women, men, and authority in the church. And today is our final Sunday. It's mixed. Some of you are like, ah, oh, and some of you are like, yes, yes, this could not have come soon enough. Um, our desire as a church is to be followers of Jesus, apprentice to Jesus, and we're trying to discover Jesus' desire for his church and for the roles that men and women play in his church, which is his body. And the question we're asking and that we've been asking for five weeks is simply this, are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? And here at North Langley, we are saying yes, yes. Women are called to serve in primary positions of leadership in the church. Men and women are called into this leading together thing, side by side, co-pastoring, co-leading in the church, leading together. And I just want to highlight um, a link on our website, nlcc.ca slash leading. Um, if you're interested at all, if this is your first Sunday here, uh, you can go to that one link and you'll find all of kind of the documents, um, uh, an update from our elders, uh, the, the data from the church survey, and then all of the sermons and then podcasts that we record uh, every Monday after, after the Sunday uh, sermon to kind of have some further dialogue about, about these issues. So feel free to check that out. This next week, a survey uh, will come your way, uh, and, as, and, and to both members and non-members, to kind of uh, the whole church. And as we conclude this series, we want to provide an opportunity uh, for, for feedback. Um, uh, we want to hear from you how these last five weeks have been, how has it been going in your life groups, uh, what has God been teaching you, and so we'd love to hear from you. But just a quick recap. Four weeks ago in Genesis, we saw women and men called to co-rule creation together. Three weeks ago, we saw all kinds of women that God raised up as leaders amongst his people in the pages of scripture. Two weeks ago, we tackled our first really tricky Bible passage. We saw Paul limiting some married women from speaking in the church in Corinth in order to bring order to the worship gathering. But Paul was not silencing women in the church forever because, after all, women were prophesying in Corinth, and that was a good thing. Then last week, we tackled our second tricky passage, where we saw that there was a particular group of women in the church in the city of Ephesus who needed the truth. They needed discipleship. They needed to learn with humility. And it's my hope that we've been able, as a church, to process some of these difficult Bible passages and see that they're not what maybe we thought they were. They're not limitations on the roles of women for all time, but they address real issues. Paul is addressing real important issues in the church, in the early church, 2,000 years ago. And so today... We're going to end our five-week series with a discussion on women and men and their leadership in marriage and in the home. Marriage and the home. Now, some of you, you might be asking, hold on, I thought this was a series on leadership in the church, right? Why marriage? Why are we going to talk about marriage? Why are we talking about the home? Well, in uh, our study on this topic, our church leadership focused most of their attention on the passages that explicitly mention church leadership. However, 
In my conversations with my complementarian friends, the question of church leadership is really tied up with the question of whether husbands are the head of the home. After all, the church is called the household of God, so it would follow that God's plan for the home would be reflected in the ways uh, that things are done in the church. The question my complementarian friends are asking is this. So how could God have a plan for men to be the head of the home, but not the church? I'm going to say that again. How can God's plan be that men are the head of the home, but they're not head in the church? You need to know that within our leadership team of pastors and elders, there's some variety of opinion on the answer to this question. And today, I would like to share with you uh, my best understanding of this issue after studying what Scripture has to say. And my hope is that you will see the continuity between an egalitarian church and an egalitarian marriage. Um, I don't use the word continuity a lot, so let me say that again because it's worth it. The continuity between an egalitarian church and an egalitarian marriage. So, Today, what I'll do is I'll present a vision for mutual partnership in marriage. And it's my hope that we'll begin to see that in the church and the home, we're better when women and men are leading together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is one of those moments where we are just leaning in and we trust you to bring light to our eyes to unveil your heart for us. Holy Spirit, we pray you'd come and move because we know that what follows um, in a marriage or in a home will not be possible without the work of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and move and pour the love of God upon us here today. We need it, we welcome it, and we're so thankful for your presence here among us, God. We thank you and we trust you. Amen. Seth Andrews, former Christian and founder of The Thinking Atheist, wrote, quote, I continue to be amazed when I see Christian women defending a Bible that denigrates women. As we've walked through the last number of weeks, I hope that you are finding that not to be true. But as we come to the topic of marriage, does Christianity teach a version of marriage that denigrates women? Are Christian marriages good for women? I know many of you are new to Jesus here, right? And you, you might have this question swirling around in the back of your mind. You're just checking things out. This might be your first Sunday here. Like, welcome. This is quite a Sunday to experience a first Sunday uh, here. You're jumping in in the deep end. But this could be a question you have, right? Are Christian marriages good for women? Well, let's dive into the book of Ephesians, and we're going to listen to Paul writing to a church gathered in the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And we'll be in chapter 5. So could you grab your Bible, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to read Ephesians 5, 21 to 27. Ephesians 5, 21 to 27. Paul writes this. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So this is the word of the Lord. So quick note, as we dive into a discussion about marriage, I acknowledge that uh, many of us in the room are in different places in life. Some of you have lost a spouse and uh, you're widowed. Some of you have walked through a painful divorce. Some of you are single and some of you are married. And so what I say today may not apply um, immediately to a marriage if you're single or divorced or widowed, but I do think what we're gonna talk about today remains very relevant. Because what we find God saying to, a, to married couples will be convicting to all of us in all of our relationships, our friendships, with our family members, and so on. And as we seek to understand Ephesians 5, it'll be important, as always, to put these words into context. What's the context here? What is Paul trying to say to the church at Ephesus? Well, a few verses before our passage, uh, if you just kind of, if you have your Bible open, you can just look up, <laughs> look a few verses up. Um, we, we see and read about Paul's passion that the church at Ephesus be filled with the Spirit. He wants the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He writes this in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Nothing we're about to talk about today will be possible unless you are filled with God's Spirit. So we pray, come, Holy Spirit, fill us with the love of God, fill us with the power of Christ. And then Paul lists four results of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. If you have your Bible open, you can just look right underneath verse 18. In verse 19, the first thing he says is, you'll speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. It'll be like a Christian musical, right? You'll just burst into song uh, with uh, beautiful songs from the Spirit. I love it. And then, number two, you'll sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. It's beautiful. Number three, verse 20, you'll always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And look at number four, verse 21, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the flow of the Greek sentence structure, these are four things that come from being filled with the Spirit. But we don't instantly notice that because if some of you are keeners, you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden there's a, there's a heading that falls between verse 20 and 21. Am I right? When you're looking at your Bible, there's probably some kind of heading in bold that says something like instructions for Christian households. You see that? I hope you all know that is not there in the original language. That uh, the, the, the committee that translated the Bible just inserted that as like a chapter heading, right? But verse 21 flows from Paul's encouragement to be filled with the Spirit. When you are filled with the Spirit, it looks like you are going to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look at verse 21. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul thinks that our submission to one another is the practical result of being filled with the Spirit. And Christians mutually submitting to one another, it will be impossible without the filling of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit will result in submitting to one another. Then, Paul unpacks three relationships of mutual submission. Wife and husband, children and parents, slaves and masters, okay? Some of you, if you wanna see that, it'll go into chapter six. You may have to turn your page to, to notice that. But there are three sets of relationships here. And Paul is casting a vision for these three sets of relationships to be marked by the filling of the Spirit, which leads to mutual submission. This is so important. So important. I just want you to see that these three relationships fall under the banner of verse 21. Verse 21, picture it like a banner, right? It's like, boom. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, let's see that work out with wives and husbands. Let's see that work out with children and parents. And let's see it work out with slaves and masters. You following? Okay. Now, the word submission can feel scary to us. And if you are new to Jesus or new to Christianity, you're like, there it is, right? That's the religious S word, you know, submission. But I believe that a Jesus-centered definition of submission will really help us out. I'm aware that some within Christian circles have used this word from the Bible to enable abuse. That is not only a misunderstanding of the heart of Jesus, but it's sin, period. This word should remind you of Jesus, of the love of Jesus, who is not abusive. It should, it, when you see that word submission, it should quickly take you to Jesus. Let me show you. The word in Greek is the word hupotasso. Hupotasso. Could you turn to your neighbor and say hupotasso? I need you to do it again and do it a little bit louder. Hupotasso. Hupotasso. Um, Hupo is under, and tasso is to stand, to stand under. This is what relationships marked by Jesus in Jesus' kingdom, it's what they look like. Hupo tasso, to stand under. Don't lord over, stand under. It's humility. It's loving others with humility, and notice it's not, a, it's not coerced from you. It is freely given. It's freely given, right? It's not you must submit to me. No, it's submission freely given. It looks like Jesus with a towel kneeling down to wash feet. Don't lord over. Stand under. There's a moment when Jesus' disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest among them. No, I'll be first. No, I'll be first. Right. They're arguing. I love how Jesus has to deal with the petty arguments of his disciples. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? I will. No, I will. And Jesus needs to teach them a lesson. He has to teach them about hupotasso, right? And in Mark 10, we read this. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, Lord it what? This is where you engage. Lord it what? Over them. Over them. And their high officials exercise authority. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Rulers of the Gentiles, Jesus is pointing to the Roman Empire. Look at the way Rome operates. They exercise authority over. They lord over. Over. Not so with you. Hupotasso. If you want to be great, serve. If you want to be great, go grab a towel and some water and start washing feet. If you want to be great out of your own love, not coerce, a coercive thing, but out of your own free love, stand under, right? Serve with a humble love. It's the way of the kingdom. So back to our passage, Paul, who is anchored in Jesus and the way, the upside down way of the kingdom, speaking to a gathering of Christians in Ephesus made up of husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and slaves, the whole church, he says this, sounds a lot like Jesus, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Parents, submit to children. Children, submit to parents. Slaves, submit to masters. Masters, submit to slaves. And in the room, a thousand questions just popped in your mind. <laughs> I can feel it. They're coming. Okay, so we're going to dive in. I'm only on page five of like, I won't tell you how many pages. We're going to be here for a little bit. Okay, so I know a lot of questions. Are, just hear it. I just hear what I believe is the flow of what Paul's trying to get at here. Do you notice how revolutionary that is? Everything Paul has to say here to husbands, wives, children, parents, master slaves, it falls under the banner of verse 21. When you're filled with the Spirit, you'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's revolutionary. The good news of Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit turn our relationships upside down. It's the kingdom way. And my professor, Daryl Johnson, says it this way. He says, quote, what what starts to happen is a revolution. The revolution Paul opens up in the revolutionary text, that is 518 to 6 verse 9, it was revolutionary when it was read in first century Ephesus and it is still revolutionary in the 21st century cities of our world. Although the text has now been read for nearly 2,000 years and has worked redemptive changes in many cultures around the globe, no culture has yet to work out its full implications. No culture has yet to work out the full implications of this text. It is beyond revolutionary. It will turn us upside down to make us look like Jesus. Now, complementarians will say that in this passage, they make a good point, right? When we're looking at the English translation of these verses, they say, listen, we, of course, we see wives submitting to husbands, absolutely, but husbands are only, quote-unquote, only called to love their wives, not submit. They're only called to love, not submit. If you read the Bible in the plain reading, in the English, it seems that way, right? 
Now, very quickly, my, complementarians will, my complementarian friends will point out that, of course, the love is a huge love. It is, it is a self-sacrificial love. It is a self-giving love. It's an amazing love, right? You, you see that in Paul's words, right, where the husband lays his life down like Christ laid his life down for the church. But the complementarian argument is, Matthew, totally, love is a high bar, but nowhere is the man called to submit to his wife. Love your wife, yes. Submit to your wife, no. You might be interested to know that in your Bible, in verse 22 and 24, if you have it in front of you there, you can just scan those verses. Twice in many translations, it looks like wives submit. It looks at the reading says, wives submit, verse 22 and 24. Did you know the Greek does not say, wives submit? Doesn't say that. If you were to go to the Greek, it does not say, wives submit. Now, of course, we know that the context is submission. So, yes. Wives are called to submit. That's not the point I'm making here. Absolutely. They're called to submit along with husbands called to submit, slaves called to submit, masters called to submit, children and parents, everyone called to submit. The whole thing is about submission. But what I simply want to point out is that the Greek never says wives submit. What it says is wives to your husbands. That's what it says twice. Wives to your husbands. You can feel free to look that up. I know this is a technical point, okay, and it might seem minor to you, it's a technical point, but when complementarians say things like men are never called to submit technically, sure, it might be under the banner of submission, but men are not called to submit technically, you can say women aren't technically either. We know all are called to submit to one another because the context is verse 21, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So everything that follows is about what that submission looks like. Paul's playing it out. And he's got a lot to say. He said, to wives, wives, to your husbands. All right? And because he's the head, and we'll get to that in a second. Wives to your husbands. Husbands. Okay, let me show you what your submission looks like. And I got to take some time here. Notice how long he addresses the men, right? Because this is, they got to get it through their thick skulls, okay? This is what your submission will look like, okay? And he launches in with a beautiful verse to men, to husbands. But the Greek says, wives to your husbands, and then later, husbands, love your wives. These are, and this is so important to see, these are sub-commands under the overarching command to submit to one another. And I've said it a thousand times, but there it is. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if we love the Bible, we have to notice the flow of the sentence structure in the Greek. If we love the Bible, we have to take that command seriously and not dismiss it. It makes all the difference. Paul is moving the church away from a culture that would have assumed a one-sided submission to a church that practices a two-way loving Christ-like submission. I need to make a quick aside about submission. It really is the Jesus way. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of humility, of service, of care, and love freely given. 
But as I mentioned earlier, there's been a false teaching in the church that says that women are called to submit no matter what, even in cases of abuse. I just this week read an article in Christianity Today of a church that is, um, needs to repent of this practice of teaching this kind of thing. Let's make it clear. You are not called to submit through the abuse. I think that's such a mishandling of God's truth. Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, Jesus allows divorce when there's sexual unfaithfulness. Exodus 21 tells uh, a woman to escape an abusive relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul allows divorce in cases of abandonment. I could say so much more about all of this, but I want to make a quick point. This is not a submit at all cost teaching. The submission here is a submission, as I've already mentioned, that is freely given, uncoerced. It is a Jesus-centered, loving gift to someone else. I will come and stand under you to love you and care for you. It's not a controlling, abusive submission. Okay. All right. The second aspect of Ephesians 5 that we need to grapple with is the concept of headship. Headship. This is huge. Huge. In verse 23, Paul writes to wives saying this. Look at just verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The point complementarians make is this. Headship means authority. This is a strong point, very strong. Yes, husbands must lay their lives down, for sure, like Jesus, but they're the head. They're still the head, the head honcho, as it were, right? Already I've had some people reference my big fat Greek wedding, but the wife is the neck, right? (laughs) Yeah, remember that movie? Okay, but going back 2,000 years, okay, what does it mean to be the head, right? Let's talk about head. The Greek, speaking of my big fat Greek wedding, the Greek is, for head is kephale. Kephale. Can you say that to your neighbor? Kephale. Now say it louder. Kephale. Kephale. You need to know this word uh, after this Sunday. If you want to go do your homework on this word, feel free. Uh, This is an important word. So there's a massive debate among scholars about, about whether this word Kephale uh, means authority or life source, like source of life. Okay, so complementarians say it's authority, authority. Uh, It means this is an affirmation of leadership, uh, of a hierarchy of leadership. Source, egalitarians say it's source. Um, This would mean Paul is saying, um, you know, uh, the life source of the church is Christ who feeds the church, cares for the church, loves the church, right? The life source. And so this is a command for for husbands to care, to love um, like Christ cares for the church. Husbands are to care for their wives. Okay. So complementarians say, authority, look at these Bible verses. And egalitarians say, source, look at these Bible verses. And uh, we could spend the next uh, day together uh, talking about all those verses. Now, You could probably assume I'm in the source camp. (laughs) I think it makes best sense of the data, and I can explain that a little bit more this week on the podcast. But I've been really persuaded by a third way. See, sometimes egalitarians and complementarians just kind of, ah, there's just like source, authority, right? 
But there's this beautiful third way to understand this uh, and, and, and to understand what Paul is doing with this word kephale, headship. So let's remember Paul, and this is, this is big, Paul is a missionary, and he's living at a time where the man was the life source and authority over his wife. That was just true about the world Paul was living in. This is not a theoretical exercise for Paul or for the early church. Let me show you what I mean. Have you heard of household codes? Have you heard of this? Some of you have taken kind of like New Testament 101, will have heard of household codes. 2,000 years ago, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the, 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 the culture that Paul and Jesus were living in had what were called household codes. These codes were supposed to bring stability to the empire. Stability, it gave directions on how men, who are called the paterfamilias, men, uh, they're the husband, they're the master, and they're the parent, right? All three of those things. And how they were supposed to order their homes. So there was a legal code for how this worked. One of the earliest household codes that we learn about is from Aristotle, 400 years before Christ. And so Paul would have been living in a culture where household codes were incredibly common. This is how you're to live your lives, with this code. These codes served as the legal framework for families in the ancient world. And in, in all of these codes, men have the total authority over their wives, children, and slaves. It's important to remember. I want, I want to actually quote a complementarian named Clinton Arnold. Just so that you know, this is not like an egalitarian, complementarian thing, right? So just listen to Clinton Arnold. He says this, quote, Throughout the Hellenistic and Roman eras, the husband-father had legal and social power over his wife, children, and slaves. The Romans referred to this legal authority as the patria potestas. That is, he possessed legal authority as the head of the household, right? He's called the paterfamilias there, right? Traditionally, the male head of the household received the dowry from the wife's parents when they married, controlled the finances, made all of the key decisions affecting his wife and his household, and had ruling authority over all matters. Listen, there's no debate. <laughs> there's no debate. Men were the head. They were in charge. It's important to notice that nowhere does Paul say, men be the head, take authority, be the leader. He just says, men, you are the head. Paul's stating the obvious. Men were in charge. Does Paul envision a day like ours where there's like equality in marriage? And all? How could he envision that day? He is in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire, with household codes. Men, let me state the obvious. You're the head. You're in control. I, Howard Marshall, one uh, biblical scholar, argues that nowhere in Ephesians 5 are husbands instructed to take authority. They, they just had authority. <laughs> they just had authority. You see, Paul is not arguing. Notice, Paul's not arguing about whether men should or shouldn't be the head. They simply were the head legally and socially. What Paul is much more concerned about, because Paul is an amazing missionary, what Paul's much more concerned about is in showing how Jesus transforms 
even within broken household codes. He wants to see Jesus get in there and start turning things upside down and bring a revolution that will eventually, 300 years later, transform the, the Roman Empire. That, that, that the way of Jesus so transforms household codes that why do we think that a historian like Rodney Stark could write that it was actually the incredible amount of women who became converts in the Roman Empire because they were attracted to something, right? Something powerful and beautiful. And so what I think Paul's thinking about is like, what would it look like for Jesus to transform these broken household codes with the gospel? What would that mean for marriages, for parenting, for slaves? So to the husband, Paul's saying this, yeah, yeah, you're the head, of course, legally, socially, you're the head, but let me show you what our head did for us. Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. That's what headship looks like. It looks like radical self-giving love. You want to be the head? Follow Jesus. It's a self-emptying type of headship. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way. Notice, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as what? Their own bodies. Let me show you what submission looks like, men. Let me show you what headship looks like. Look at the cross. The head of the church wore a crown of thorns upon his head. The scriptures say he was struck upon the head. Over his head is written the words of mockery, Jesus, King of the Jews. And as Bernard of Clairvaux writes, O sacred head, now wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, your only crown. This is headship for Paul. And to husbands, he's saying, listen, you just are in charge. Legally, socially, here in the middle of the Roman Empire, you're the head. Now, how are you going to be the head? See what's happening here? Ask yourself the question, is Paul trying to make a larger point to say that ancient household codes are forever? No. I don't think so. Is Paul trying to say that men have the legal, absolute control over their wives forever? I don't see that in the text. Remember, in Genesis, the Bible starts off with this vision of partnership, co-partnership. Then a patriarchal hierarchy comes in, in Genesis 3, which is part of the curse of the fall. So when we come to Paul, we think he's endorsing a hierarchy? No. Paul, what, what is Paul? Paul's a great missionary, working within a broken, sinful structure, trying to show and reveal the heart of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. Can I ask you like a glaringly obvious question here? Paul seems to endorse slavery in the same section. Just read a few verses down. You'll have to flip a chapter, but it's in chapter six. He seems to endorse slavery in chapter six. Do we believe that the household codes that mandated what slavery looked like, do we believe those are good? Of course not. 
Slavery is not God's design. Slavery does not align with the imago Dei, the image of God in the book of Genesis. Paul is simply living in a sinful and broken world where there are systems, where there are the powers and the principalities. Notice in chapter six, some of you who uh, are prayer warriors, you'll know chapter six is your chapter, right? Uh, be armed uh, with all of, the, all of the tools necessary to fight the spiritual battle. Well, because there are principalities and powers, structures like slavery that are in operation. And Paul knows that it's only by the filling of the Holy Spirit and following the way of Jesus that we can get to some kind of mutual submission, some kind of Christ-like self-emptying and self-sacrifice. He knows this is a battle. So he is not at all endorsing slavery forever. <laughs> not at all but he is working within a broken system to see the beauty of the gospel take over. And he's challenging the church to live the way of Jesus. And, and, and I think the heart of Paul's message here is simply this. Jesus has to be the center of your relationships, the center of your marriage. That's the forever message. You're like, well, what's the transcultural message? Jesus, <laughs> he's the transcultural message. For him, to come and just be the center of your marriage. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills you and I with the love of God and the grace of Jesus to be able to be turned upside down and to start loving, submitting, listening, caring for, and serving our spouse. And a Jesus-centered sacrificial marriage of love sounds a lot like this. Okay, I trust you on this one. Okay, I'll defer to you on that one. What do you think? I wanna see how you see this. So what are you hearing from God? What, what's the Spirit saying to you? You know more about this? You're more skilled in this? I'll defer to you. You're more affected by this? So I'll trust you with this decision. How can I support you through this? See, that's what this, that's what this relationship sounds like. It's all that, and it's both directions, husbands to wives, wives to husbands. It's this beautiful partnership. Does that not sound like a partnership from Genesis 1 to 2? Does this not sound like the one flesh relationship that we read in the pages of Genesis? Tanya, when I was working on this message, uh, my wife, she, she just, she brought up something really brilliant. She just said, so many couples in this mutual submission, what they're gonna to have to do is start to work out their relationships based on things like gifting. So which one of you is more gifted with, with this or with that? Maybe you work it out with personalities. So some of you just have different personalities. So your marriage will look different from someone else's marriage. And what about interests that you have? One of you is more interested in this than the other, so you defer to them. What about parental patterns, like the way you watched your own mom and dad work through things? And some of that was good and some of it was not good, but how can you pull some of the good out of that and let it inform your marriage? See, each relationship will look different. Each couple will have to communicate a lot to work it out. But what a beautiful description of self-emptying, self-giving, willingly, uncoerced, laying our lives down for the other. This is good. And I just want to say to my complementarian friends, you totally don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but I hope that you see that this is equally as good, uh, equally as good to have these gospel-centered relationships of mutual self-giving. Now hear me out. I know for a fact 
that when I say something like this, uh, now all of a sudden some painful memories come to mind, right? Like some of you have walked through marriages where you've experienced deep pain uh, because your spouse uh, was struggling with a deep narcissistic uh, behavior. One person, one spouse was maybe steeped in pride. Uh, one person was not walking in humility. One spouse made decisions based on lust or greed or their own career or their own desires. And many, many, many of you in the room have experienced a profound pain because one spouse was not walking in the humility of Christ. And maybe some of us would say, actually, both of us weren't really walking in the humility of Christ. Or maybe some of you who are kids of parents who just go, there was a lot of dysfunction with my parents because they weren't walking in the humility of Christ. And so what I'm saying here, I just want to say I'm painting a vision, a Jesus-centered vision. We all fall short of the vision. I fall, I definitely fall short of the vision in my marriage to Tanya. But we need the Jesus-centered vision, right? We need to be inspired by it again. Now, really quick, some of you may be familiar with a version of a complementarian marriage. Uh, I don't know how many I'm speaking to here about this, but you, you may be familiar with, with a version of complementary marriage called a tie-breaking model. So I'm just, are you familiar with the tie-breaking model? Yes or no? A couple of you nodding, yes. Um, this was, I think, made popular Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Um, the model aims to describe what male headship means in a marriage, right? So the idea is not that the man is head over all things at all times, but it's a much softer version. So the idea is that um, in 99% of cases, the husband and wife are working together towards a solution about big decisions, finances, education, parenting their children, when to buy or sell a home, how to grow in their faith, you get it, big decisions. Most couples can, can through conversation, communication, can be able to work out, uh, you know, how to make a decision in these areas, uh, arriving at a mutual conclusion together that honors both of the, the husband's input and the wife's input. But on the rare occasion, the model argues, um, that on the rare occasion, you need someone to be the tiebreaker, all right? So you just, you know, husband and wife, it's like, nope, it's not going anywhere. So, so at what point uh, do, do we need a tiebreaker? And the idea then, in this uh, complementarian uh, way of understanding marriage, in this model, the wife then submits to her husband so that he can make the final call. It's called the tiebreaker model. I just wanna say a couple things. Um, by the way, first of all, I understand, uh, I know that many of us in the church uh, have operated in this way, uh, and, and some of you are here who, who operate in that way, and I just want to just offer a couple of my own thoughts here really quickly. Um, first of all, I've got massive respect for couples that I know that operate. Uh, they've, they've led some pretty beautiful, healthy marriages, um, and so just, just want to say, uh, Huge respect for people who have lived this way, a good version of this, a complementarian form of marriage. Um, and, I, and, and just so you know, I think it's the best version of it. If you're, if you're going to go complementarian, it's the best one, okay? It's like, if you're going to be on that side, it's like, yep, that's, that's the one that I would say, okay, that's kind of the best version. But I um, just want to offer a couple of thoughts here. Um, it, 
From a complementarian perspective, if headship means authority, um, I don't think it means tiebreaker. I think it actually means authority 100%, not 1%. I think it's, a, it's, it's 100%. Um, so it's 100% authority over all decisions that a family makes, not 1%, the final 1% of decisions. Um, after all, so just I'm trying to play out the, the complementarian thinking. If Christ is the head of the church, he doesn't say, okay, you guys do what you want to do 99% of the time. I'll come in at the 1% and I'll just kind of make a tie-breaking vote, right? It's not how Christ is the authority over his church. So I'm not sure it's consistent with a complementarian way of understanding authority. And, um, and I would say I think this idea of mutual submission is just uh, way better uh, because it's not about who's got the tiebreaker. It's about death to self and standing under. It's willing the good of the other. So it's not who's got the final tiebreaker. It's uh, I defer to you. <laughs> no, I defer to you. It's like a defer to you battle, right? It's like, no, I want what's the best for you, right? And so there's this sense of just, I think the mutual submission is better. An egalitarian marriage is better. For 17 years, Tanya and I, I know that's not long. Some of you have been married like many decades. So you've got more wisdom than we do, but it's worked for us for the last 17 years, this mutual submission. Um, and so I offer it just, uh, offer those thoughts, hopefully humbly um, here. And I'll say more on, on the podcast on, on that tiebreaker idea. But let me show you biblically what mutual submission or mutual partnership can look like. If we want to see a biblical vision of equal partnership and mutual submission in marriage, turn to 1 Corinthians 7, just right now. Could you just quickly flip there? Just turn 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to encourage you, go home, read the chapter later. I just want to point out a few verses to you. And so, sure, legal headship might have been the way of the Roman Empire, but when Paul gets detailed, line after line, we see equal partnership in marriage. So inspired by Taryn Williams, I just want to show you what I mean. Look at verse 3. Look at Paul in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Mutual right? Look at verse 4. The husband does not have authority over her own body. Oh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Remember, go back 2,000 years. What is, this is countercultural. Okay, look at verse 5. Do not deprive each other except, by, except perhaps by, say it out loud, yeah, mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Notice all the equality, all the mutual authority. Can you imagine how countercultural this is? Just look at chapter or verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Hold on, right? The wife has authority over her husband's body. Side comment. Here is a woman having authority over a man. Remember last week? A wife has authority over a husband's body. I, I just can't imagine what the first hearers in Corinth, as they listen to this, what they're hearing. Of course, the husband has authority over his wife's body. That was, that was the culture. This is the counterculture. And Paul's describing a relationship of equality, of partnership, of mutual consent, of mutual submission. And so I would just say to you, if, you're a little, if we're a little unclear about Ephesians 5, won't 1 Corinthians 7 be able to 
connect the dots for us? Wouldn't 1 Corinthians 7 be able to help us out a bit? Richard Hayes, professor at Duke Divinity, Bible scholar, he says this, quote, the marriage partners are neither set in a hierarchical relationship with one over the other, nor set apart as autonomous units, each doing what he or she pleases. Instead, the relationship of marriage is one of mutual submission. Northangley Ephesians 5 is revolutionary. It's a revolutionary text then, and it's revolutionary now. Mutual, loving, Christ-like submission. Think of the impact upon your life, upon your relationships, upon your marriage. Today, you and I do not live in the household codes of the Roman Empire, but that does not remove the timeless call to lay our lives down for one another. Men are no longer the legal head of the home, but that does not mean we are off the hook from laying our lives down for our wives, children, friends, no longer slaves. That's a good thing. I think the fear some complementarians have is that if you do away with headship, then somehow you're doing away with the high calling on men to lay down their lives for their wives. I'd like to say not at all. Not at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Men, this will cost you everything because you're a disciple. It'll cost you everything. You're still called to lay your life down for your wife. This is still a high bar. The call is for all of us to lay our lives down for one another, to be inspired by the cross of Christ. That will cost nothing less than your entire life. The bar is high. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, to love is to will the good of the other. As Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. North Langley, let Ephesians 5.21 submit to one another. Let it have full force in your life. Say, Holy Spirit, come. Let it have full force in your life. Let Ephesians 5.21 revolutionize your relationships. Let the mutual love and submission work its way through each and every nook and cranny and corner of your life. Let the gospel, the good news, change all of our broken relationships we have to be. Do you notice now why you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you cannot do this. There's no way. There's no way I can stand under. I need the Spirit of God. So we say, come Holy Spirit. As our series draws to a close, there's always so much more that could be said. If it was just up to me, I would have led us through a 10-week series. But I'm trying to listen to wise people in my life that say, don't even think about it. <laughs> 10 weeks. So there's so much that could be said. We as leaders recognize that the conversations will need to continue in the days ahead. I hope that your life group continues to have beautiful conversations. We as elders and pastors would love to help in any way that we can. Would you reach out to us? And we hope that we'll continue to see unity truth and grace and love extended egalitarians to complementarians complementarians to egalitarians in our church family for years to come some final thoughts from me i just want to tell you that i love you i, I am so like 
Okay, I'm not gonna get teary, but blessed to work here and honored that I had the chance to do this research. I mean, this was like fun for me. Um, uh, and I've, I've tried to do my best uh, just with the studies, with the tools available, with the wisdom of these incredibly brilliant people who've blazed a trail definitely before me, before I ever showed up. And I hope it's been useful. I hope you're inspired. And if nothing else, I hope you're inspired that this series has driven you into the Bible, into the pages of Scripture. I hope that we've caused enough commotion to get you to go, what? <laughs> and to pick up your Bible. That would be a win. Uh, I was, I was, that's the win for this series, is to pick up the Scriptures and dive into them. And I hope that this morning, whether you agree or not, that you see a continuity between the egalitarian, an egalitarian church and egalitarian marriage, that it's partnership, it's co-leading, it's co-pastoring. I hope that throughout the last five weeks, you have been inspired to see women and men called into this beautiful partnership of co-ruling and co-pastoring. And I hope that the beauty that we see in the pages of Genesis, the incredible list of women leaders on the pages of Scripture, the reality of what was happening on the ground in Corinth and Ephesus and the beautiful vision of submission uh, in marriage. I hope it all just comes together and that the data all comes together for you to show that we truly are better when women and men are leading together. Will you stand with me? We're going to continue in worship. And as our prayer team comes forward and we have our prayer team uh, in the prayer room, what does God want to do in the next 10 minutes here as we worship? What is God going to start doing? What kind of seed is he going to plant here? How can healing begin here? So we're going to pray, come Holy Spirit. And we're going to let him just do what he needs to do in the room. First of all, some of you, maybe this ignited some memories of some painful things that have happened in relationships. Maybe it's marriage, but it could also be friendship, coworkers, family members, I don't know. But would you come forward and begin to receive prayer? It might lead to counseling. It might lead to deeper prayer, deeper community to find healing. But would it just start right now as you come forward and say, I need prayer. I need the spirit of God to heal some wounds that I have. Please come forward. Uh, for some of you married couples, what would it look like right now in the room to maybe just turn towards each other uh, and, and, and pray for one another and to say, we don't know where the journey is going, where we're headed here but we want Jesus to be the center. And the two of you can pray for each other. Maybe you can come forward to receive prayer. Also for men in the room, you know, maybe this is a bit of a different game plan than you've been given. And maybe for you, you'd like to come forward for prayer and say, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, I just, Jesus, I wanna look like you. And I know that in my relationships, I have not been acting in the self-sacrificial love that you've poured out upon my life. And I want that in my life. And just come forward. I mean, you can even just kneel down too and pray or just whatever you need to do. And then finally, women uh, in the room who uh, maybe in the last number of weeks, the spirit has been just lighting a spark deep within you for ministry and for leadership. And you're wondering, should I take those courses? Should I say yes to that internship? Should I offer my name to lead a life group? Should I, you know, whatever it is, like maybe you would just say, Holy Spirit, come and fan the flame. Um, I want to serve the kingdom, uh, the king and his kingdom. And so how cool, you could come forward too and receive prayer. Um, and so we want to just pray that God would come and move in a mighty way 
And as a reminder, as we end, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So come, Holy Spirit, just pour out the love of God upon this room. God, we need you. We cannot do this without you. Heal us, oh God. Inspire us. Humble us. Point us to Jesus. In your powerful name we pray, amen.